Welcome to the Psych Central Show, where each episode presents an in-depth look at issues from the fields of psychology and mental health. With your host, Gabe Howard, and featuring Vincent M. Wales. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this edition of the Psych Central Show podcast. Today, we are going to be discussing the 21st Century Cures Act, which took pieces of several different bills and turned it into one big, massive bill. We're going to be discussing specifically the ramifications for those living with mental illness. And on the show today is Dr. John Grohall, who's going to help guide us through it so that we can all better understand. Welcome, John. How are you? Doing well. Great to be here. Happy to talk about this very important topic. Excellent. And of course, always on the show is Vincent M. Wales. I would be rude if I didn't say hi. Uh, You can be rude and still say hi, too. Uh, Excellent point. All right. So, John, it's all you from here on out. The first question we have is, so what version of the various mental health bills that are out there made it into the Cures Act? And of course, what are, you know, some basic highlights? I think that the main bill that really made it in was the Helping Families and Mental Health Crisis Act of 2016, which was um, Murphy's bill from the House. Um, Tim Murphy's a psychologist, and he is very uh, passionate about talking about um, helping families who have a seriously mentally ill child or adult living with them. And this really was his effort to um, get some uh, assistance for, for those kinds of people. One of the things in the link of this, we're going to go ahead and put the link to some writing by Dr. John Grohall about the various incantations of the Helping Families and Mental Health Crisis Act. Now, obviously it wasn't passed that way, but you'll be able to read through them. So so what are the highlights? What are the big highlights? I, I know there's sure. some controversy, but what are like the, the top five? Well, uh, Murphy didn't get along, uh, it appears, with the, uh, with the administration uh, of SAMHSA, which is the federal government's program of how it gives money to the states to, to have treatment programs for, for the most seriously mentally ill um, people in their states. And so he didn't he didn't succeed in sort of gutting this federal agencies called SAMHSA, but he did reorganize its leadership um, so that now it's not headed by an administrator anymore. It's headed by an assistant secretary underneath the um, the Health and Human Services secretary. And I think that was done primarily to help elevate the importance of the position and make it um, and, and to help people understand that mental health is just as important as a, as, as a physical, physical health concern. And it also added a chief medical officer, uh, which basically has to be a doc, a physician who is licensed to practice medicine to help go through um, some of the programs and, and, um, and processes that uh, SAMHSA uses to, to fund uh, programs in the state. So that was one of the big changes. There's a couple other changes. They changed, uh, there, there was uh, sort of, uh, a lot of the bill was sort of housekeeping. They changed the names of things. Um, and and some some media outlets mistakenly thought that these were new things, like the National Mental Health and Substance Use Policy Laboratory. 
Um, actually, that's an office that already exists, and they just they just changed the name of it and, and added the word laboratory to it to, to make it sound more scientific, <laughs> which is, you know, kind of amusing, but not really helpful to anyone except for all the stationery that needs to be changed out. <laughs> Some of the other big highlights were um, with mental health parity. Uh, that's a law that they passed back in um, 2008. And the, the law basically states that insurance companies can't treat a mental illness diagnosis any differently than they would a physical um, disease condition diagnosis. And that means that they can't limit treatment for it. They can't um, specify like obstacles or hurdles um, that they that they also don't use for their for physical disease. The problem is is insurance companies have been very creative in finding ways around this, and so the new law um, uh, puts some teeth into the parity uh, enforcement, and and helps uh, the government make sure that um, insurance companies follow not only the uh, letter of the law but also the spirit of it, which is hey, these things are, are equal and you should treat them equally. And that's a very um, good thing. I, I know myself, I've, I've had mental illness for 10 years. And when did the original parity law pass? I believe it was 2008. Yeah, I, have, I still have yet to have parity on my own uh, insurance uh, right now, even though it's been offered. So I know that a lot of people are, are, are hoping for that because, you know, why should mental health and physical health be treated differently? Yeah, so, yeah. So would you say that's a good thing? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is uh, it, this is an ongoing issue that that has been a problem in in the um, in the treatment area of mental illness for decades, which is that insurance companies have have always treated mental illness with a, a sort of a completely different set of rules than than if you were diagnosed with diabetes or cancer. Um, and it's it's been very frustrating, both on um, as as you just spoke on the on the patient side of things, but also on the provider side of things. Uh, therapists and psychologists and psychiatrists really hate the fact that they can't always offer the 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 gold standard treatments that they want to be offering patients because they can't get reimbursed for them. So. It's very fascinating the way insurance companies see this because if you have cancer, you go into your better. Uh, or until the end, if you have mental health, uh, a mental health issue, you go for eight visits. Well, what, yeah. hap what, what happens if you need a ninth visit? No, 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 you're fine. Uh, so very good. Let's turn it for a minute. When, when, it, when we talk about the Murphy Bill, when the mental health community talks about the Murphy Bill, one of the big things that, that came out of it with this idea of the AOT laws, which are assisted outpatient treatments or what a lot of people in the mental health community called the forced treatment laws. Representative Murphy tied his desire to pass this bill into reducing violence, which, you know, made a lot of us, I'm trying to avoid saying go crazy, but uh, we didn't like that comparison. Where did we end up on that? We ended up with a compromise, which basically continues the kinds of uh, small grants that have been available for states who implement AOT programs but uh, importantly does not mandate that in order for states to continue to receive their, their huge chunk of money from the federal government called a, a block grant um, that they implement an AOT program. So it's not a mandatory requirement 
And that I think is an important win for all mental health advocates who um, reject the, uh, the, the finding that AOT is the important ingredient. If you look at the research, it's not the forced treatment aspect of AOT that works. It's the providing more resources to people who need them. That's the, that's the part of the AOT uh, 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 treatment programs that actually works. It's the resources. It's, hey, these people need all the, they get all this great treatment under AOT programs. Why don't we just provide that without the, the forced part of it? So, Well, John, you know, in, in some areas, there is no forced part of it. Here in California, in the few counties here that have actually implemented AOT, there is no forced part of it. It's not even part of the equation. That is fantastic to hear. That is fantastic. And uh, I, I wish that those would get promoted more around the country. Now, one of the things that you talked about was resources. Resources is just a fancy word for money. Let's talk about money. What does this do for money? On the money equation, it's it's sort of a, a wash. Um, I know people talk about how this bill provides all this great new funding for um, for, for mental illness treatment, but the, the reality is, is that um, it, it it provides some additional money for some programs. Uh, importantly, the the big chunks of money that go to states, uh, the block grants, that that has gone up. Um, but other components of of the bill has has actually cut funding, um, and I think it was all done to sort of balance uh, the numbers to make sure that they had a way of paying for the other kinds of things that got passed in this bill, which includes the opioid um, crisis component of treatment. So they, um, so I, I kind of feel like the, the funding comp- part of this is, is really not like they, you know, they, they took out their checkbook and wrote a, a new $2 billion check for, all, for mental illness treatment. And, and, and keep in mind, um, this bill only authorizes funding. It doesn't actually give the funding to any of it. What happens next is that there has to be a, a actual authorization um, of funding. And, and when that happens, which is a, it happens in big budget bills, that's where senators and, and representatives tend to uh, cut. They, they don't give as much funding as the law allows. So we'll really be able to see whether uh, any of this gets more funding when the authorization comes down and um, we see how much these programs actually get funded. It, one of the interesting things is I, I'm reading some of the highlights uh, of this and it says that treatment for homeless went from 50 million to 41 million. Uh, so, you know, obviously that's that's a loss. It's a almost 20 percent loss. Um, we have uh, the National Child Traumatic Stress Initiative went from 50 million to 46.8 million, uh, another loss. Uh, jail. Yeah, and, exactly. And we were talking, I see you were just about to mention the jail diversion yeah. program funding. It went from $10 million a year down to $4.2 million a year. And I don't understand that, quite frankly. Um, I'm sure if if we had a Hill staffer here, um, they might, who, who understands the intricacies of, of all this, you know, funding stuff, they maybe could explain it better to us lay people. But um, I don't get it. Uh, it's, it. These are clearly smaller numbers, um, and it doesn't seem like a, a big win for for people with mental illness. And that's somewhat curious to me because a, a lot of folks, uh, and again, I haven't surveyed all of them, but uh, just reading online, and you know, a lot of people feel that this is a big win for people living with mental illness. 
it's a big win for people living with mental illness in very specific populations and under very specific conditions. It's, um, you know, in terms of the majority of people with mental illness who get their treatment in an outpatient basis voluntarily, um, who don't have uh, trouble with the law, who uh, this bill doesn't really change much of anything for, for those people, and that's the majority of, of people out there. It, it does change uh, things for people in very specific kinds of uh, situations and circumstances, and I think um, I think it's important for what it does, but I, I think sometimes it's being oversold as some sort of uh, groundbreaking new law that really um, switches up the equation of how how we define and treat mental illness in America. I don't think it does anything of the sort. So it's basically more of the same, just uh, one of the things that I think you said was that it was a wash and it was mostly housekeeping items. Can you expand on why you feel that way? You know, changing the names of things and moving uh, the administrator, getting rid of the administrator for SAMHSA and turning it into an assistant secretary position. I mean, these are kind of, uh, this is like moving chairs around on, on the, I wouldn't say the Titanic necessarily, but it, it it's it's really kind of, just changing things around to suit a, a new order who has come in and said, hey, I didn't like the way things were organized before. I'm going to uh, switch things up to hopefully um, be more effective. I think the, the end result is is all of this is done to try and make the federal government money go further and, and be more effective. But, you know, at this early, early stage, we don't really know if any of this will have any kind of significant impact um, on, on, you know, people's actual lives and treatment. Since you're talking about, uh, about money, there is one little chunk of it that is new, and that is for real-time bed databases. Um, fortunately, it's not a, a mandated thing. Uh, if states are interested in setting up a, uh, a real-time bed availability database, now they've got some money available for it. Uh, I have to say that uh, I don't think this is a great idea because it is such a, a foolish thing that's never going to work. Here in California last year, we had a bill uh, to get a real-time bed registry implemented. And we, we did defeat that bill because we knew that it was just going to be a colossal waste of time and money. Uh, you can't make it work. It's just really not possible. You have any thoughts on that, John? Yeah, I'd have to agree. I, there's some there, there's some little uh, line items in this bill that don't make a lot of sense if you kind of read the bill all the way through and you see like something that sticks out, like oh, real time uh, beds database. Like, yeah, you know, whose pet project was that that they got twelve million dollars <laughs> a year? Um, yeah. for the states and it almost looks like it was written for a specific company in mind who 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 the states will you know license this dead beds database for or something and you you see this a lot of times in these very large bills where you get these little tiny programs that um, sneak their way in and and probably aren't really of much benefit to anyone and as you noted, um, are just, you know, basically you're, you're creating an impossible situation. It's just there's no way that that database would ever be real time and accurate the way it was uh, the, the way Congress intended. No. And but the problem there is because now that there's money there, 
that means some states are going to go for it. So they're going to waste time again with legislation that people are going to have to oppose because they realize that it's, you know, more of a problem than a benefit. And I, and I have no doubt that we're going to see another such bill here in California this year. One of the things that we should point out to the people listening at home that may not understand is one of the biggest reasons that this is somewhat pointless or, or all pointless is because there's almost never any beds available. We don't have enough beds to serve the needs, so that number is almost always going to be zero, zero beds available. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the problem isn't tracking beds available. It's providing more, making more beds available that are affordable and actually accessible to people who need them. And, and in in places of any kind of population density, um, those beds simply do not exist today. Very good. So uh, we've got a couple more minutes. Let's talk about HIPAA. Uh, does the new law try to address some of the family concerns or, you know, what, what about the patient's right to privacy? Where did we land on that? Again, luckily, the new law didn't actually mandate some new HIPAA changes, um, but it did direct uh, the folks at SAMHSA to investigate this issue further and to uh, report back to Congress within, a, I think it was either one or two years time, about w what HIPAA actually says and when can providers talk to family members about, um, about mental health treatment issues. And so the, the, the end result of all that is that there, there are no changes to, um, to the HIPAA regulations today, um, but in the future we still have to be vigilant to make sure that um, uh, patient privacy protections remain in place for people who are uh, cognizant and able to, um, to be able to sign an informed consent uh, form or whatnot. And keep our privacy protected. So, and then another note that I have here is the Medicaid same-day services loophole was closed. Can you speak on that? Yeah, very. Uh, I mean, that that's just been one of those inadvertent things caused by a previous law where um, if you had a mental illness diagnosis, you couldn't be seen for any other kind of Medicaid-related um, appointment. Uh, so if you had to go see your doctor, it couldn't be on the same day that you went to see your psychiatrist or your therapist. And um, that is oftentimes problematic because Medicaid, of course, covers people who are the poorest and don't often have access to ready transportation. So they would actually be doing a lot of these appointments on the same day because the providers were located in the same area uh, of the city or actually in the same offices or the same building. Um, so thankfully, this um, the, the law finally closes this loophole, which has been around for at, at least a decade, maybe longer, um, and has been a, a bane of uh, patients and providers alike. Not only that, it's just it's one of those things where you, when you first hear about this, as I did several years ago, I just looked at the person who explained it to me. I said, you are kidding me. That is the stupidest thing that I've heard all week. <laughs> So I'm, I'm really glad to know that this is finally going to be fixed. Yeah, it was one of those things. Like I said, it, it was accidentally created as a as a thing um, so so long ago. And of course, the 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 thing to do, have done would have been to fix it immediately. But Congress being Congress, it took them uh, a very very long time to close that loophole. And uh, in the meantime, a lot of citizens have suffered because of it. 
All right. Well, Dr. John Grohall, thank you for being on the show. We've, we're pretty much out of time, but do you have any final thoughts, anything for our listeners to take away? One last point. One of the things that, that Murphy seems super concerned about and he didn't like SAMHSA doing was um, uh, devoting or the, he didn't like the states doing was devoting money to peer, uh, to peer programs and, and peer-led programs and peer-led um, education and things of that nature. And so in the new bill, we find the, the, the phrase evidence-based um, 57 times. 57 <laughs> times we see the wow. word evidence-based in the 21st Century Cures Act. Guess how many times it appears in anything medically related versus mental health related? Once. It occurs <laughs> once. So 56 of those 57 times are all because of Murphy's hang-up on this whole evidence-based mantra. Meanwhile, elsewhere in the bill, we have the pharmaceutical companies who, who were very successful with this bill, let me tell you, um, who lobby to get the, the phrase real-world evidence placed into um, their component of the bill so that they could start introducing sort of anecdotal evidence to replace randomized clinical trials um, to help them get um, new drugs passed into uh, FDA uh, approvals. And so that it just it just blows my mind how there can continue to be this sort of unequal treatment between things that are, are mental illness related where there is this high, high standard that they keep raising the bar and they keep making the bar different than the same standards that we would use for medicine. And that is one of my pet peeves. Like it, I don't, I don't have anything against evidence-based, you know, treatments and programs of that nature, but I think it's, I think it's very short-sighted to, ignore all the good and benefit that is done by peer-based programs as well and to say that one is superior to the other or or, or they can't be complementary i think is just uh, shooting ourselves in the foot all right well john thank you again for being on the show we really appreciate it and to all of our listeners thank you so much and we will see you next week on the psych central show podcast PsychCentral.com is the Internet's oldest and largest independent mental health website. PsychCentral is overseen by Dr. John Grohall, a mental health expert and one of the pioneering leaders in online mental health. Our host, Gabe Howard, is a professional speaker, award-winning writer, and mental health advocate. You can find more information on Gabe and his work at GabeHoward.com. Vincent M. Wales is an award-winning speculative fiction novelist and suicide prevention crisis counselor. You can find more information on Vincent at vincentmwales.com. If you have feedback about the show, please email talkback at psychcentral.com. There are few words more misunderstood and misused than OCD. Imagine having unwanted thoughts stuck in your head all day no matter how hard you try to make them go away, and then having to pretend that everything is okay despite having to feel crippled inside. That's OCD. 
One in 40 people suffer from it globally, but there's hope. If you have OCD and need help, you can get better with specialized treatment. NoCD offers effective, affordable, and convenient treatment for OCD and is covered by many major insurance plans. Go to NoCD.com to learn more. That's NoCD.com.